Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. That's my 70s art right there. It was 1972 to date myself and perhaps many of us in the room today. Uh, I lived right there uh, in the uh, beautiful uh, suburbs of Los Angeles, Palos Verdes, if anybody knows LA. Uh, was that? Yeah. I will say the all white suburbs of Los Angeles. And uh, these may be fighting words around the Valley of the Sun, but 1972 in LA was the first year that the Lakers won the world championship in, uh, in basketball. And uh, I was a Phoenix Suns fan because Kevin Johnson was played for you guys for a while and I, I went to college with him. And uh, I'll just say that when I give this talk in the Bay Area, back when the Warriors were good, uh, I would get, you know, hateful hisses uh, at this point. Well, the Lakers of the 1970s were most famous by Wilt Chamberlain, who famously scored 100 points in the same game. Now, he was actually playing for Milwaukee at the time when he got the 100 points, but still, um, they played here in what's called the Fabulous Forum in Inglewood. It's near LAX. If you ever go to LA, you'll see it. The Lakers have now moved to Staples Center downtown, and this is a concert venue. Um, but as it turns out, um, the, the Lakers were not the only basketball team that I had the opportunity to watch at the Fabulous Forum. You see, when, uh, when I was in third grade, my mommy, she brought me and my big brother to the Fabulous Forum to watch basketball. And uh, this is not third grade, but I love this picture with my brother and my mom. So I put it up here. That's when we actually lived in, in Midtown Manhattan. And, uh, and, and she brought us to see the Harlem Globetrotters, right? So uh, I loved it. You know, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, and to date myself and you once again, Meadowlark Lemon, you know, was playing when I saw him. Uh, Fred Curly Neal, if you recall, was Meadow playing Lark then. Lemon used to play at the J here. Yeah. Every morning he would be, uh, until he died, would, would uh, work out at the J. Shoot some baskets. No kidding. Yeah. I loved this game so much. It offered a course direction in life for me. Because when the game ended, I turned to my mom and I announced to her, when I grow up, I'm going to be a Harlem Globetrotter. <laughs> oh, and she laughed too. <laughs> yes, it was crushing when my mother told me that I would not be a Harlem Globetrotter. And um, when I said, why was it that... Uh, I'm not going to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And she said to me, you have to be black to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And you're white. 
And that was the first time, at least in my life, that I can remember that I was white and someone else was black, and there was a consequence to that. Well, I gave this talk in African-American audience, and one of the men in the audience raised his hand, and he said, actually, that's not why you're not a globetrotter. <laughs> he said, it's because you can't shoot. And I said, you don't even know me, but that's also true um, as well. So um, apparently, um, I was a slow learner when it came to understanding what race meant, at least uh, for me in my life, because I was raised in the reform movement in Judaism right here at Temple Beth Allen Center in San Pedro, California. And when I was growing up in the 70s, um, the curriculum for religious school, Sunday school for us, had exactly three things in it. Uh, well, the holidays every year, you always did that. But it, every year we learned the same three, the th same three things. First, um, we learned, of course, about the Shoah, the Holocaust, uh, and that it was terrible. For any Jewish educators or retired Jewish professionals, I'll just say, showing first graders the French film Night in Fog, not a good idea in terms of like traumatic stuff before we're developmentally appropriate. I'm just hypothetically offering that as, as, as some, some feedback. Um, a second, we learned that Israel was wonderful. And uh, in fact, one thing that we look forward to each year was the Jewish National Fund Tree in Israel campaign. And uh, what it was like when I was growing up, you got a cardboard sheet and it had spots for 10 quarters. And you'd take the quarter, you'd stick it in the cardboard thing, and then when you got all 10, I'll do the math for you, $2.50, you would get a tree in Israel, and the rabbi would say, one day may you go to Israel and visit your tree. Well, this was exciting, except I had, well, I had two traumatic First, I happened to walk into the office one day, um, and the, the secretary had what was called back in those days a typewriter. And in the typewriter was my Tree for Israel certificate. And then I realized my tree didn't come from Israel. It came from down the hall. And second, now that I got into Jewish leadership myself, it turns out you can't visit your tree when you buy one tree in Israel. You have to buy 10,000 trees before they're going to put a plaque up in Israel for the, for the JNF in order to see it. Um, what's that? It moved. It moved. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, okay. So, yeah, that's, that's, even, that's the postgraduate part of, of JNF. And then the third thing we learned about, of course, was uh, social justice. And, and this image came up constantly, and this is Dr. King uh, and Rabbi Heschel, of course, uh, and this was that the Jewish community was deeply involved in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, that Jews were disproportionately represented more than anybody else, and sort of year after year, what we now call tikkun olam, my two favorite words in the English language, um, we called social justice back in the day, um, was a part of our, of our Jewishness. So all of this captured together, uh, brought me uh, as an undergraduate to the University of California, located in Berkeley. Um, and uh, it's just, that's just like such a gorgeous view. In case you don't know Berkeley, this is where Mario Savio led the free speech movement in 1964. And he, he literally you know, changed the world. And the way politics goes at Berkeley, this is Spa Plaza, where all the speeches are made and such. And um, organizations get tables and they line them up on the walkway. 
and they put all their flyers on the table. And then if you're interested in that group, you grab the flyers and you meet somebody. So um, uh, I, of course, you know, made, made the first stop as my first day, freshman year, and I went to the Hillel table. Um, it was then called the Jewish Student Board, and I gathered all the information. Uh, and then, of course, I went to, to the next stop, which was the African Student Union, the, the black student group on campus. And, uh, and there I met my African-American classmate, I introduced myself, and I proclaimed that I was there to begin the black Jewish dialogue. He... Uh, he laughed in my face. He just burst out laughing. And uh, I was rather startled. I was not, not, not expecting that particular reaction. Um, I think he noted that I was probably looking a little surprised at, at his reaction. And in order to calm me, he, he reassured me by, by offering the following words. He said, hey, I'm from Harlem. Now, Literally, I knew Harlem. I knew Harlem was an African-American neighborhood in Manhattan. Um, and I also knew when he said that, that he was communicating to me something in a more deep way, which is, white boy from the suburbs of LA, meet black man from Harlem. And guess what? Your life and my life have been and are fundamentally different. We just happen to have landed in this pot of real estate on the Berkeley campus to go to school together in a class of 5,000. And, uh, and in order to, I think, show what we would call Rahmanis or Rahmanut mercy on me, he said that he would, if I was interested, pitch my idea for a black Jewish dialogue to his group. He assured me that nobody in the group would be interested but he wanted to offer me the respect of at least making the ask. And I thanked him for his offer. I told him that that would not be necessary. And that ended the UC Berkeley Black Jewish Alliance of 1982. And as it turned out, started this book, Black Power, Jewish Politics, Reinventing the Alliance in the 1960s. Erev Tov, good evening. It's great to be back with Valley Beit Midrash. And again, because this is my second time here with this organization. You know? So it's great, yeah. And, and, and thrilled to be here. And uh, my joke on this book, which is not really a joke because it's true, it's painful. This is my second book. It just took me so damn long to write it. It's my fourth book. It was a 20-year project. You know, it's one of those things you just keep putting aside. And then finally, I decided I'm going to retire unless I stop this and actually you know, finish the book. So in a certain sense, that moment at Berkeley with that interaction was what I needed to start thinking about and what that meant. And in a certain way, the book is the resolution to that conversation. So any former history majors here? I'll speak freely. Thank you. <laughs> All right, here's how it goes. This is an easy word. Just to let you know, they will get harder. So do I have a brave soul who would like to offer the definition for history? Uh, yes. The past written by the victors. Oh, <laughs> so well done. With a thesis as well. I just call it the study of the past. Well, but wouldn't it be 
the male victor since it's his story? This is oh. a very good group. All right, so I need to pause for one moment. Um, and that is to say that uh, I give prizes to my students at state, you know, and uh, I tell them that when I get my first million dollar paycheck, I'm going to cover their tuition. Yeah. No, yeah, thank you. Knowing I'm never going to have to have to actually deal with it. But in the meantime, um, they get pencils. But more than regular pencils, these are genuine Jewish studies themed pencils, which they never use because they've never used a pencil in their life and they don't know what to do with a pencil. So these are merely badges of honor. And uh, you will be the first two to receive the badge. Just grab one now. You could trade later because I'm here till midnight. So there you go. All right. And uh, just to uh, inspire all of you and maybe intimidate you, I'm just going to place these right here. History, the study of the past, here's the advanced word. Historiography. Any former English majors here for a little etymology on the word? Anybody want to give that one a shot? Yeah. I'm a sociologist, so, you know, I don't know. I'm a frustrated sociologist, so I appreciate you. By the way, that, that, that was a dig, and she's absolutely right. Like, all I can do is agree with you, because that's how, that's how it goes in academia. Uh, so what do you think? So, you know, historiography is um, how we approach the study of history. It's our, our methods, how we write about it. Nice. I'm trying to see if I have my, my handy-dandy pointer here. Um, I'll get that in a moment. Uh, it's this word graph. If you see the word graph in there, graph is writing. Historiography is the history of historical writing. Or as the late Rabbi Dr. Michael Signer likes to say, why use a monosyllabic <laughs> when a polysyllabic will do? That's why I believe in polysyllabics. And uh, it is the study of how historians have studied the past. So here's how it goes. Um, academic historians don't write history. We write historiography. As much as our job is to present a detached third-person critical view, right, to, on your definition of history, of whatever we're writing about, we are ourselves, generationally, age, gender, orientation, race, class, whatever our identity categories are, they are going to come into play as we write. What we write on, what sources we pick, how we read each source, how we put our sources together, we have peer review as a process to check us. So like I do Jews in politics, so they send my manuscripts. I, I'm not supposed to know who reads them, but I know who reads them because there's five of us in the country. And they send mine to the people on the political opposite side of where I am to, in order to see how I'm doing, right? And, 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 and then we work on this. Um, most undergraduate history majors don't, don't get historiography. It's really something you get in graduate school. The best illustration would be this. Let's assume you're a white student at the University of Mississippi in the 1850s. And you're taking US history class, and you've got your textbook from the University of Mississippi Press, and this week's reading is the chapter on slavery. What's it going to say about slavery? Perfect. It's perfect, right? The word that they used developed in the, 19, in the 1840s was a positive good. They developed seven different arguments why slavery was a good thing. Now, if you were a uh, student at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in 1860, uh, <laughs> reading their textbook, uh, chapter on slavery, what's it going to say? 
It's terrible, right? Boston's the center of the abolitionist movement. So if you didn't know nothing about anything, and you put those two chapters side by side, you wouldn't even know you're reading about the same historical event. Because the perspective of the, of the author, of the historian, is so radically different. So the job of the academic historian um, is to read everything ever written on whatever topic you're doing and say to yourself and to your professors, well, they're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about because they're not as smart as me. And then you write your dissertation and later your books where you are arguing in your book that every previous generation misunderstood. They got it wrong. You got it right. And then you get hopefully a book contract from a university press. Hopefully that gets you tenure. You know, you make your career by saying you're the smartest one and everyone else is idiots. And while that might work for younger scholars, when you hit middle age and you've been more than 20 years out and your first book has already circulated in the graduate students who are now calling you an idiot because they're going to build their career on saying you're wrong, you get humble and you realize we're kind of all in this, you know, together. So, um, so tonight is not a history of blacks and Jews. Tonight is an historiographic assault on everyone who's ever talked about this so you know what idiots they are and how right I am. The first, oh, my favorite polysyllabic, filio pietistic. Anyone? I'll give you a hint. It's from the Latin. What's that? Oh, nice. Okay. Other, other thoughts? Literally, love of one's own brother or love of one's own family. Actually, it means ethnic self-congratulations. Actually, it means, aren't the Jews great? And we are great, aren't we? We are so great. You see, the first generation of writing in, in any ethnic studies, I'm in Jewish studies, so I'll focus on the Jews, tends to talk about the contributions of that group to society. So in black studies, the first black studies books were, look at all the great things blacks did, or women did, or Jews did, or LGBT did, or American Indians did. And that's how you got published, because in ethnic history and ethnic studies, no one had ever captured these stories ever. So the first scholars, the first grad students, all captured the stories. So what do you do if you, um, uh, if you were in the second generation? In the second generation, you have to say, the Jews suck, right? Because if the first generation are the Jews are great, now you have to show that they aren't so great, because that's why you're so much smarter than the one before. And then the third generation says... Oh, stop bickering between good and bad. The truth is more complicated. And then they do complicated stuff in the middle. And then the fourth generation says, you're asking the wrong question. It's all about transnational environmentalism. And then they start all over again. So, Rabbi, I'm going to make you the judge. I'm going to give them a little competition. It's worth the prize. You have one week to um, use the phrase. Are you ready for this? Filiopietistic historiographic analysis in conversation. And if you can, you get a prize. Now, here's the thing. You can't say, I went to Valley Beit Midrash and learned about filiopietistic historiographic analysis. That's too easy. You have to have an ongoing conversation for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally occurs. And if you, and if you tell the rabbi the story, so he will be the judge and he will prove that you actually used filiopietistic historiographic analysis, then, then uh, I, will, I will mail you your prize. Now, just to tell you, I have a little inside joke with the word filiopietistic or filiopietism. And um, one of my colleagues at SF State 
You know, he loves the word now that I introduced it. So my students who are also in his class, I tell them that they'll get a prize if they can drop the word in his class without me, just say, well, don't you think, Professor Astron, that's filiopietistic of you to say, right? Because he'll know instantly where it came from, right? So we're kind of playing this game. So when I wrote the book, I had to get the word filiopietistic in, right? Just for fun, and I got it in twice. And the book was just reviewed in the, um, the uh, I, think, I think the review in, in the Jewish Studies Association Journal has the word filiopietistic three times in a 400-word review, which I consider a rhetorical victory of all sorts. So um, somebody came back once and said that they had achieved the goal, and this was the word they said. I actually wrote it out, and I couldn't pronounce it for you again, but I said, I'm sorry, that's actually you know, not close enough. So we have history, we have historiography, and the third thing that I'm going to mess up in your brains tonight is historical memory. Um, it turns out that history is different from historical memory. As it turns out, what actually happened and what we think actually happened or what we remember happening doesn't jive. Now, those of you in criminal justice may know that eyewitness testimony is, is often wrong. Like, how could that be if you saw it, but, but you're actually, like the data shows that, that this is also true in history. We tend to remember kind of what we want to remember. We tend to forget what we'd like to forget. And we tend to spin whatever we have to remember in a way that we'd like to spin it. And when everyone is doing this collectively in this American Jewish community, we tend to construct narratives that, that move. And the antidote to problems with historical memory is to go sit in the archives and actually read the primary historical documents from the period and get back in touch with what actually happened. So this is a history book, which is actually a historiography, but it is also an assault on historical memory. And with that, um, we'll get into the thesis. The historian's craft. I grew up in grad school learning that the historian never inserts themselves into their narrative. Our job is to be dispassionate, third-person critical, and analytic, right? Blah, blah, blah. That's, that's what professors do, which means if I write a history book, you read the history book, you should, if I do it well, be transported to a time and place different than your own. The book should draw you into that time and place. You should live vicariously through its pages. And when you finish, you're like, wow, thank you, Professor Dollinger, for bringing me on that historical journey. And if I do a lousy job, you can't get through 10 pages. And, and I failed. So I wrote my first books as I should have. And uh, this one caused a problem. You see, the first two words of the title are black power and I'm a white man. Can a white man write a book that starts with the words black power? Technically, yes. Because if I do a good job, I've done a good job no matter who I am. It's like my training and my writing, you know? At least that's how I was educated. Well, at SF State, I was teaching a class, and the class before mine in that room was communication studies, and the professor was an African-American man. He's now moved to UNLV, where he runs their African-American studies department. And uh, what that meant is we had a four to eight minute conversation twice a week, 
as he was cleaning up and I was setting up, right? That's collegially how it goes. And we get to kind of know each other. And then um, one day he said, would you mind holding the students in the hall next time? We're probably going to run late. My students are giving their oral reports. And I'd prefer not to interrupt, even if they're going over. I said, of course, not a problem. By the way, I said, what's your report on? And he said, it's how their race or ethnicity informs their communication style. And the course was ethnicity, race, and communication studies, so that made sense. So I said, that's great. We never have that in the Department of Jewish Studies at SF State. And he said, why is that? And I said, well, because we don't permit, or I'll speak personally, I don't permit my students who are Jewish to identify themselves as Jews because I don't want a divided classroom with, between Jews and non-Jews. And as soon as Jewish students claim their Jewishness and use the I, we, us thing, they are excluding non-Jews in the room who are not part of that group. And since I'm an historian, I remind the students, I'm not talking about you anyway. I'm talking about the 1400s. So it's not you. So refer to Jews as they and them in the third person. Said, the first time you refer to Jews in the first person, I'm going to glare at you in a really mean but silent way. The second time you do it, I'm going to call you out in front of your friends. Now, informally, we got kids who go to Jewish summer camp, some who've been to Jewish day school, a lot who come from Hillel. They're a pack. They know each other. They have relationships outside of my class. Some of them date each other. Some of them have broken up with each other. And that whole mess walks into my university classroom and sits down and engages one another while the five or eight non-Jewish students sit back and stare at them. And then I'm supposed to explain, I'm no longer your camp counselor. I did that for a lot of years. Now I'm your professor, and this is inappropriate right now. What did you think about the reading, right? So um, I explained to this African-American professor, I said, I understand what you're doing, and, and it's right, and, and I'm doing this to be more inclusive of, of all students who come to my class. And he looked at me and said, you know, my blackness is on every word I speak when I teach. And my blackness is on every word that I publish. It took him about two more weeks for us to have enough of a relationship for him to let me know that my whiteness is on every word I teach and my whiteness is on every word I write. Only I don't have to say so. I'm enjoying privilege. It was given to me in graduate school with this mythology that the historian can be third person and detached. And he outed me. And with that, I realized I've got to change this book. It was, in, it was still in final production. So I called up my editor. I have a good relationship with her because I've done two of my other books with her. And I said, I got to break the basic rule of academic historians. And Brandeis University Press published it. So it's like a legitimate academic press. So I got to ask permission to break the rules of academia. You know? And I said, I already had an introduction. So I said, I need a preface. And in the preface, I have to out myself as a white, middle-class, suburban, L.A. man raised in the 70s with all these ideas so that people reading this book about blacks and Jews can decide if they like or don't like what I'm writing based upon as full a knowledge of who I am as I could possibly give them in, in the pages of a preface. Would you permit this? And since I'm being recorded I, I will make it recording friendly. But my editor said, quote, Mark, 
you're a senior scholar, you can do whatever the F you want, unquote. She dropped the F-bomb on me. So I said, thank you so much, we're putting it in. All that is to say, the stories I told you about the Globetrotters and about the Black Student Union at Berkeley and at the story with Harlem, that's the preface of the book. And while it is ostensibly a self-deprecating human interest story about the author, I want you to know that it goes to the heart of the deeper meta issues around what it is to write about race relations, what it is to write about blacks and Jews, and what it means in this generation of the historiography for a middle-aged, cisgendered, heteronormative, white male, senior professor to write about a radical black militant movement and its relationship to Jews. How's that? All right. What is this? You would say the letter Y. And I would say that is correct, and it's more. That is, are you ready for this? A visual depiction of the filiopietistic historiographic analysis relevant in post-World War II literature on black-Jewish relations, wouldn't you agree? Don't you see it? Okay, I will illustrate. If you read a book in the first generation of black-Jewish relations, the filiopietistic school, you would learn that, let's just, on the upper left, let's put blacks on the upper left, let's put Jews on the upper right of the Y, blacks and Jews, and they're apart, do you see? But time goes on, and look, they come together in the civil rights movement with King and Heschel, it's beautiful. They're marching together down history lane. It doesn't matter if it was a local history or a national history, a biography, a memoir, anything you read in that first generation, that was the thesis. And that's all well and good, except that the next generation, kind of, by the way, the first generation typically were Jewish civil rights workers. I mean, they tend to, they, either they wrote their own story or because they were involved, they were interested in writing different histories of it. So it tended to be filiopietistic because they were capturing their own contributions. Um, the second generation, and, and this was my dissertation, really was more of an X. And if you take the blacks and the Jews at the top, they come down here in the middle, and, and they did from about, let's say, 1954 with the Brown decision or the Montgomery bus boycott um, until 64, the Civil Rights Act, 65, Voting Rights Act, Rise of Black Power is also around that time, and blacks and Jews went separate. Today, blacks and Jews are definitely not where they were in the civil rights movement. So the second generation of books in the historiography were all the X, no matter what it is that they, that they talked about. So um, this book um, sits in the historiography after the Y generation and after the X generation. And now the challenge that I had and that you all are gonna have right now with what we're gonna do is to figure out what the next historiographic generation is going to be. So we're gonna do a Chevruta study. Chevruta is the traditional Jewish way of analyzing text with two people in partnership uh, from the Hebrew word chaver or friend, uh, friendship. And, uh, and, and so I'm gonna give you your instructions first and then I'm gonna hand them out. Um, this is great for this group, so we want two people in a group. If we have an odd numbered, we'll have one group with three. You're gonna get a quotation. But I'm gonna tell you two things about this quotation. Number one, I have eliminated the author of the quote. Number two, I have eliminated the year in which the quote was said. Your job, identify the author in the year. Now, 
Don't worry if you don't know the specific person or the specific year. You can give a profile of the person who would have said that and your best guess on what year it would have been. That's fine. Um, most of you will have a quote. Some of you just have a question. If you get one that just has a question, you're just answering the question. Don't worry about the quote. Just answer the question. I did this at the Hartman Institute in New York, and they're very smart at the Hartman Institute. And um, it turns out African-Americans have been described using different words over the years. Black, Afro-American, African-American, Negro, you know. Um, what's that? Colored. Yeah, yeah, colored, too. That's right. And they were able to find the word used and then date the quote based upon that choice of vocabulary. And I said, that is unfair. You are being too smart. <laughs> so I want you to all know that I've done an ahistoric thing. I changed them all. So you can have no confidence that whatever word is being used to describe blacks has any correlation to when it was said. OK? Uh, are we ready? All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass, uh, get together with your Chavruta partner. I will give you the quote, and then we will proceed. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. All right, if I get your attention up here, even if you're not done yet. Um, you all have different quotes or different questions. So in order to assist the visual learners as well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to read your question or your quote and to do it uh, slowly, loudly, and clearly just so people can, can hear it. And they need to think about it and, and process it. And I'm going to put it up here on the screen too so you can read it as well. So who had uh, text number one? Okay, so uh, text number one, if you could uh, read it for us. Who do you think would say this in, 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 in what year? Black power stresses black initiative, black self-worth, black identity, black pride. Black power seeks the growth and development of black economic and political power. Black power seeks black leadership development. All right. So uh, how did you converse on this, and what did you come up with for who said it and when? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And why, and why is that true? Why, why would a black person be saying that? Um, it's filiopietistic. It's oh, well done. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Application of the word. Uh, what year? What year do you think it was? And just so you know, black power rose 1964, 65. That, that can be your... Can yeah, you? We think it's, it's after 64, 65. Yeah. Um, Political basis was there already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the period of, of cooperation was no longer. Right, right. Yep. Did you change any of the prongs? Oh, I can't say that now. It's all part of the game. Yeah, so this is clearly uh, an African-American in the mid-1960s named the American Jewish Committee in 1969. <laughs> How could this be, right? It's, all right, so for those who may not know, American Jewish Committee, a national Jewish self-defense organization. It's in the center, maybe even center-right a little bit. Um, and if you were thinking about this quote, I don't think we would ever imagine the American Jewish Committee would say it, first of all. And second, that they would say it in 1969 
which is in the height of really even a lot of the violence that's going on between blacks and Jews and black power. And this, yeah, after the 68 Olympics and, and, and the, the clinch fist. So the American Jewish Committee says that black power stresses black initiative, self-worth, identity, and pride. Black power seeks growth and development. It seeks black leadership development. So if the historiographic, um, filiopietistic historiographic analysis says... And by the way, this was historical memory. When I grew up learning about this in the 70s, Jews helped blacks. Blacks became militant and anti-Semitic. Blacks kicked Jews out. Jews were pissed off. That, that narrative, that historical memory, places blame on African-American militants, on black power activists, and on black anti-Semitism for dissolving what was a wonderful interracial alliance. I would not expect that a national Jewish organization in the midst of the tensions that were going on, would be making a public statement lauding the positive aspects of black power. So, by the way, this is what you call a good day in the archives. Because when I read that, I realized that everyone who's written on black Jewish relations before me are idiots. <laughs> Nobody has wrestled with what that means. I now need to think about how and why AJC would have said that what was going on that led that, uh, what the significance of it was, and then ultimately for historical memory, wh why, why did we, and, and by the way, you had what I call the correct incorrect answer, so thank you. You, you were supposed to say it was a black in the mid-1960s. That's, that's how it's designed. So because you have read the filiopietistic historiographic school, you have internalized the historical memory, which I did too, because that's what we were taught, and, and now there's something else. Okay, who has text? Yep. You know what I mean? I mean, that just because they're saying blacks, you know, emphasize mm -hmm. economic development, black leadership, I mean, could they be accusing the whole black power movement of being filiopietistic? Right. You know so we must know the context of that quote in order to assess it. So with that, I'd like to go to text number two. And what I'm saying is that you're doing an, an excellent job trying to hold on to the older historiographic school. It is my job as author of the book to um, dismantle all of that and to do it piece by piece. So who has text number two? And you didn't change that with uh, that, Yeah, correct. That, that, that was not changed. Thank you. That's a good point. So who has text number two? Please, if you could read your question. Defamation League respond to the Nation of Islam. All right, what do you think? Well, uh, we could put Louis Farrakhan, yeah. the noted leader of the Nation of Islam, conducted himself as anti-Semitic. And so ADL would probably call him out and ask him to renounce his past statements. This is exactly what we would imagine it should be. Right? The Anti-Defamation League is the nation's leading um, Jewish self-defense organization fighting anti-Semitism. The Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, before that Malcolm X, before that Elijah Muhammad, were vehement anti-Semites, calling Judaism a gutter religion and Hitler a great man, if you remember all of this stuff. They wrote books accusing Jews of being slave traders. And, um, okay, here's what actually happened. If you go to the archives. So here's the story. In 1959, Time Magazine did a cover story on the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad. And in this feature-length uh, article, they described him as a bigot and a racist, an anti-white racist, and an anti-Semite. 
and uh, it was a pretty awful article if you were a follower of the Nation of Islam. So I'm sitting in the archives, and I've got this memo from the national leader of the ADL sent to his regional officers around the country, and stamped on the memo is not for publication, you know, confidential. And, uh, and here's what the memo said. It said, uh, Time magazine notwithstanding, we have no documentable evidence of anti-Semitism on the part of the Temples of Islam movement or Elijah Muhammad. How could it possibly be <coughs> that the ADL is going against Time magazine to let all of its regional branch officers know in a confidential memo Time Magazine has it wrong, the Nation of Islam is not anti-Semitic, when, when clearly it is. By the way, I gave this talk at the Center for Jewish History in Lower Manhattan for the American Jewish Historical Society. They run the archives. And I was saying, 99% of your time in the archives is wasted because you're just flipping through stuff, looking for relevant stuff. And then you come up with this confidential do not publish, and you're thinking, this is a good day. I learned a lesson. Don't say that when the CEO of the archives is sitting in the front row because she jumped up, interrupted me, and let 200 people assembled know every day is a good day in the archives. <laughs> I said, okay, you're right, because if I hadn't spent all that time, I wouldn't have been able to find this. And then I had an ethical dilemma because it told me I couldn't publish this. So I called, actually, I called my doctoral chair at Boston University. I said, well, I said, what's that? So I said, what, what, what are the ethics on this? He said, it all has to do with whether or not a limitation was placed on the documents when they were brought into the archive. So you check with the archive director. And if there's no limitations at that level, you're free to use it. There were no limitations, so I used it. Which means, you know what happened? At the ADL, they were like moving offices. And they must have had all those big you know, file cabinets full of files we used to have before computers. And someone was like, get rid of them. So they just hauled them over and stuck them in. In, in lower Manhattan, and then I finally, like, I'm like, like spending a year flipping through every page, and then I come on this thing, and I'm like, how could it be that the Nation of Islam was defended by the ADL in 1959? Um, there is a, um, no, no one has this one, right? Uh, I, th I think I, I, I just, I joined my text together, right. How would the American Jewish Committee respond? It's, you know. We would imagine similarly than the ADL, right? And of course, wh what did we learn? Um, in 1959, the same year, Elijah Muhammad was scheduled to give a lecture in a northern New Jersey metropolis. Let's call it Newark, shall we? And, uh, and the uh, AJC was concerned about his rising popularity among African Americans and about the threat he may pose to Jews. So they wanted to send somebody undercover into Elijah Muhammad's talk to surveil him and report back to AJC leadership about how anti-Semitic he was. There were no African-American Jews in the uh, AJC in the New York metropolitan region, and a white Jewish person with a clipboard is not going to do well surveilling Elijah Muhammad. So in, in an arrangement which should cause us pause and maybe concern, the AJC linked up with the City of Newark's Human Rights Commission and an African-American member of that commission who agreed to go undercover, write up a report, and then send it to the AJC. So now you have a private organization linking with a public entity in order to conduct surveillance on a radical in order to report back. Well, 
the report came back that it was a two and a half hour rambling speech which referred to Jews as Christ killers. So the official AJC report um, was that they were more concerned with his anti-white statements and that they could not consider the speech anti-Semitic. Right, thank you for that look. It's like, how could that be, right? So sitting in the archives, I'm going, oh, this is going to be good. Like, I have no idea why yet. Right? That's what I have to think about. But th this is all undermining historical memory, and it's undermining the historiography, and it's certainly a new view of history. Question? Was this marked as not for publication? Um, that, that was not. So I, I'm confused. Why would they, the first statement, why would they not want that published? Um, I can only surmise that if white Jews were minimizing a anti-Semitic threat from black Americans, that that would not play well in the Jewish street. That On they, the other hand, might it not ameliorate relationships between the blacks and the Jews? Right. So that's, an, that's a good question. I didn't, I mean, well, I guess we can all yeah. hypothesize. There was no answer in that. Um, uh, yep, yep. It seems to me that we're forgetting that before 1967, Jews were quite apologetic on the whole about being here and trying to lay low. All right, so thank you. So let me, if I can broaden that to a big argument, um, that uh, ostensibly this book is about black power, but it's not. It's about white Jews, right? So what, what I had to come to, my first conclusion, and, and that's pencil worthy, right? Because this is like, this is where my thinking was as I'm reading through this stuff, is I'm saying, if the Nation of Islam is being supported by Jewish organizations in the late 50s, and by the way, Louis Farrakhan used to have a place in the lower right-hand corner of the ADL's website. 24-7, they told you where he was. That's an obsession with the Nation of Islam, right? Um, and the Nation of Islam has been as anti-Semitic then as it is now. Therefore, this is not a story of the Nation of Islam. This is a story of what's going on with, Amer with white American Jews. And as soon as I framed it as a Jewish story rather than a black story, this book is actually about American Jewish historiography. It's not actually about blacks. It's just it's using black power as a lens to undermine the historiography, challenge our historical memory, and come up with a new way of understanding it. And just to let you know, when I have African Americans show up for my book talks, um, if, if, if I have a good number, I just say this publicly. If I don't privately, I just sit down with them. I say, just to let you know, I know you came because you want me to talk about black power. I'm actually going to talk about white Jews. I just want to give you a heads up, you know, um, and it's generally appreciated because, um, because of that. Um, 38 black Muslims were forbidden to wear medals symbolic of their faith um, in, a, in a jail in Lorton, Virginia. What would the organized Jewish community say? No one had, had this. Did no one have this one? Okay. So, all right, by the way, do you kind of get where I'm going with these quotes? Now we're going to have the Valley Beit Midrash honor code moment. For those groups who have not yet reported, you are forbidden from changing the answer you originally had. <laughs> because if you do that, you violated the honor code. The point here is to have the correct, incorrect answer and then to walk through the historiography in order to see it. So... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. I got tenure and privilege. That's right. So, 
So one, one would think, of course, in the old historiographic school that Jewish leaders are not going to support Nation of Islam felons on their right to wear Muslim garb. Um, and the head of the American, well, Shad Pollier of the American Jewish Congress, here he is with Dr. King. He absolutely writes a letter to the warden to say religious freedom demands it. Now, that, I would say let's all agree that religious freedom is central to Jewish organizations. But I will tell you, I don't think today that national Jewish leaders would be aware, take the time and write the letter and advocate on behalf of anti-Semitic Muslims in prison and the right to, to pray. I just, I just, while technically they would support it if they had to, I just don't think they would do what they did here in terms of, of that agency. Who has text number three? Can I tell a, reminds me of a joke. <laughs> yeah, make it quick, because I, I, I do have to get out of here by midnight. There's a, there's a little Jewish guy reading Muhammad Speaks, and his friend says to him, why are you reading Muhammad Speaks? He says, because the Jews own the banks, the Jews own Hollywood, the Jews own Wall Street. So we're doing great in Mohammed speaks. <laughs> Thank you. Who has text number three? We did. Okay, please, if you could read it for us. Okay. So the long-standing African-American distrust of white people, born of oppression, is manifesting itself in a growing spirit of go to love. Blacks were already reevaluating their alliances, had come to know their strength in the political and economic arenas. This person predicted a period of mutual irritation and misunderstanding followed by spike in new and more active forms of black anti-Semitism. So who was the person that made that prediction, did you think? Uh, I mean, we, we went what we thought was the obvious. <laughs> yeah. It was the, the then director of ADL, Dave Foxman. Okay, and what year? Um, we disagree. What, is it, what did I say? You said 95. No. Oh, Google, thank you. By, well, one pause. No using your phones tonight. That is a violation of the honor code. Uh, I did this talk at UC Santa Barbara, and my daughter, who's, a, who's at Wesleyan now, um, uh, was there, and she ran up to me, and she said, the students are using their phones. Tell them to stop. And I, so I usually, I usually make that part of the rule. So, yeah, all right, so what year did you think? I said 1970. He said 1995. Okay, 1970, 1995. Um, so I will say you're absolutely correct with the Anti-Defamation League. Well done. Nathan Edelstein, though, 1960. Oh. Now, what's significant? Wow. Thank you. That early is the historiographically significant insight. <laughs> that, that is what you're supposed to get. Well, I got 1960. So, you said wait. 1995. And I even know how to use a pencil. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, yeah. So, so let me talk to you about 1960, all right? Um, it may, it may be less surprising that it's a Jewish person and the ADL that you correctly identified would be making this analysis. What's historiographically significant is that it came in 1960. So if our historical memory and our understanding of the, of the historical literature says that blacks and Jews split up in the mid-60s because of the rise of black power, because of the rise of black anti-Semitism, and we're not for blacks being terrible to Jews, we'd still have this alliance, right? If that were true, then it's not possible that four years before black power was invented, mm -hmm. we have the, a leader of the ADL publishing in a journal, these are all public statements, that the longstanding, and this was Negro in the original, distrust of white people born of oppression is manifesting itself in a spirit of go it alone. He called black power five years before black power. Blacks were already, quote, reevaluating their alliances. They wanted to know their strength. 
There was going to be a period of mutual irritation and misunderstanding, and there'd be new and more active forms of black anti-Semitism. This guy was a prophet. Or he wasn't. He just understood race and racism and white supremacy and the limits of Jews, Jewish liberalism in ways that I, in the 1970s, was not raised to think about. Yeah. So in, in New Orleans, where we lived for many years, the uh, first successful protest action by the African-American community was against um, Jewish business owners on Dryas Street, who were mostly Eastern European, Yiddish, Orthodox mm -hmm. Jews. And um, they were working in the stores, and they, those stores sold to them, but they also stored to white, white people. And the, the action started because the, the African Americans wanted to work in the front of the store as well as at the back of the store. Right, right. And these were mom and pop businesses, and they were told, yeah. if we do this, we'll lose Right. We might get a little bit into that. That's actually in my first book, but that's an excellent point. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk about, uh, about the so issue. Yeah, would have been aware. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank, and thank you. And this is, this is what the historiographic point is. Thank you. I'll get your pencil. Which is, they understood it even before it happened. So anyone who writes a book that puts the, the alliance breakup in the mid-60s is wrong. And anyone who says it's because of black anti-Semitism is wrong. And anyone who has a monolithic view that this is because of the, of, of the rise of black nationalism also doesn't get it. Uh, number, text four. Uh, I just have to pause one moment. Uh, go, go ahead real quick, but then I got to make sure I get through. Yeah. I'm probably not sure. It's clearly what's happening earlier, but we, the public, yeah. didn't notice it because it didn't make news. All right. Yes. Yes. I, I, will, I will agree with that and double down on what you said to say, of course they knew about it. Of, cor of, course, of course they knew about it. Of, of, well, no, no, I'm going to say the public did because that was published in, the, in the, the, the thing that goes out to all the membership of the organization. When I was, most of the stuff, most of these sources you will see are not private sources. These were published sources. So my critique of my academic ancestors who wrote the X and Y versions of this history is like, you read this stuff because you can't get, you can't write a book on this without reading what the ADL said. You know, is there a question? Is there a question? Thought? Question or thought or anything? Oh, okay. So let me... All right. All right. So we'll get, we'll get, that's all right. We'll get to that real quick. Who had, did you have, did you have number four? Who had number four? Oh, you did. Perfect. Okay. If you could read it for us. All right. A segregated system is not merely an unfair system, but it is a wasteful and inefficient system. Nevertheless, we do not believe that a federal law to equalize educational opportunities by public subsidies should be used as a means to attack the segregated school system. So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems do not discriminate financially against children in the minority schools, any bill should be now let me pause you there one moment. Was anyone here come to the afternoon talk I gave on Jews and whiteness? Okay, I had this quote before. You're now forbidden from speaking, <laughs> and now we're putting the cone of silence around you. Okay, so what did you think? I think we're kind of confused. I mean, I, I think that I, I think it's probably a white southerner. Who's yeah, and why would why would it be a white southerner? Yeah, oh, you're right. On. Yeah, explain explain to the folks who haven't been thinking about this about that. Yeah. 
education and the opportunities were equal, right. it didn't matter if you separated whites from blacks. And what is this saying? I think that's what that's saying. The, it's saying... So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated school systems is not discriminate. Not but the and we should know the Brown decision of 1954 overturned that thinking, right? Thank you. Right on. Are you attorney? All right. So I don't say it's okay. It says it's unfair, wasteful, and inefficient. It never says it's okay. But that's that's correct. We believe the bill should be supported. So it's either somebody from North Carolina or something. All right. So let me give voice to our to our attorney here. In 1896, the case of Plessy versus Ferguson argued, and this was in interstate transportation and trains, that um, it was okay to engage in Jim Crow segregation so long as black and white train cars were equally funded. Now, the truth is they were never equally funded. But what the Brown decision said in 1954, even if they were equally funded, it's still not fair because it's inherently unequal. That was the phrase that they used in the 54 decision. This is a correct, a white, southern, Jim Crow, segregationist, racist embrace of Plessy. This is a rejection of the Brown decision. And what white racist said it? Rabbi Stephen S. Wise. Whoa. In 1947. Where did he live? New York City. As Simon and Garfunkel says, the sound of silence. Wow. Right after the Holocaust. How could this be? Just to let you know, this is not in the book, but I had to throw it in here because it's such a provocative <laughs> statement, all right? So, I'll walk you back. Here's the backstory. 1945, World War II ends. The Cold War begins. United States is interested in beating the communists. And they realize that since, according to our U.S. Constitution, education happens at a state-by-state -state level, they believe that we will never beat the commies if we continue that system, that Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, North Dakota will never have the resources necessary to train a generation of young people to be the kind of scientists we need in order to win the Cold War. So they decided it would be a good thing for the federal government to get involved in public education for the first time in U.S. history. And Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, by the way, one of the most important, if not the most important rabbi of his generation, he was personal friends with Franklin D. Roosevelt. He created the Free Synagogue of New York. Um, to say that I found a racist rabbi to say that, in order to put it in the book, um, this is in an earlier book that I, that I put it in, is not true. This was as influential, powerful, well-known rabbi as you could have had in his generation, right? I'm trying to, to centralize and normalize him. So he goes down to the Senate Subcommittee on Education, takes a train from New York down to D.C., and he testifies in favor of federal support for public schools, which is a very Jewish and very rabbinic thing to do in 1947. He finishes his testimony, and the white Southern congressman, bigot racist, pull him aside. I don't know if they called him rabbi or just boy, but they let him know that, uh, that this bill will not get out of committee because Southern states will not permit federal dollars because they know it comes with strings attached and they're going to go after racial segregation. So what the Southern, Southerners said is, we're going to put an amendment to this bill. And the amendment is going to be, you can have your money for federal support, but the local authorities are going to decide what school gets it. And since this is 47 under the Plessy case, it's going to go to all the white schools. So they said to the rabbi, 
They said, Rabbi, you can either sign on or this bill will never get out of committee. And now you're Stephen S. Wise. And now I will now give honor to what your statement was from the beginning. And this is what he said. A segregated system is not merely an unfair system, but it is wasteful and inefficient. This was his morality moment. He needed to say that because he knew what was coming next. The word nevertheless. And everything else that follows is the deal he made with the devil, I mean with the white South. So here's the historiographic significance. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was too young in 1947 to have been in that room, but just for fun, let's imagine he was there. And let's imagine that the white Southerners gave King the same offer. Would he have made the deal? King would never make the deal. He's there for civil rights and racial equality. If you go to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and say, hey, I'm going to give a whole lot of money, but only to white kids, what do you think? He's like, no, that's actually why I got started in this, you know, to overturn that kind of thinking. Weiss enjoyed white privilege. He enjoyed the ability to sell out black Southerners. I mean, he enjoyed the ability to pass the law for many children in America in order to move in what's called liberal gradualism. That's the phrase. That means white liberals understand social justice takes time. You can't do everything in one time. He got down there. He wanted to do something really big. They push, okay, I'll, then I'll, here's my little comma, my nevertheless, and we'll do it step by step. So I argue that as early as 1947, the roots of the beginning of the end of the Black Jewish Alliance were already in existence based upon the fundamental privilege that white Jews enjoyed against the fact that African-Americans didn't. And when white Jews are faced with these impossible moral choices, they are going to react as whites, and African-Americans will react differently. And when you just take that truth about white supremacy in America, and you march it through the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, we are going to find out that there was no surprise. Who has text five? Please. <coughs> I'm tired of the philanthropy of rich white men toward your race. I want to see you fight your own battles with your own leaders and your own money. We white men of whatever creed or faith cannot fight your battles for you. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with you until you can fight as generals all by yourself. All right, what'd you think about that? Sounded like a white man. <laughs> all right, phew. For those who are just reading this for the first time, we white men, this is a good indication that it is a white man. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's a white man. Excellent. Uh, what white man or what year? We thought after Civil Rights Law. Yeah. And why is that? Civil Rights Act, 1964, 1965. Yeah, everybody was marching together up until that point. I mean, yeah. Rabbi Heschel and, and MLK. Yeah. Yeah. You need to fight your own battles with your own leaders, your own money. We white men, right? Like after the rise of black power, this white man understood that things were going to change. And that white man absolutely understood it in 1914. <laughs> and his name was Joel Springarn, the founder of the NAACP, along with Arthur Springarn and W.E.B. Du Bois, the first African-American earned the PhD from Harvard. Whoa, wait a minute, let's go back. Joel Springer, by the way, not a random Jewish guy. 
This is the founder of the NAACP, so let's make him as important and central as we can. And in 1914, he stands before an African-American audience and says, I am tired of the philanthropy of rich white men towards your race. I want to see you fight your own battles with your own leaders and your own money. We white men of whatever creed, that word creed is a 1914 word, we don't use creed so much anymore, or faith cannot fight your battles for you. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with you until you can fight as generals all by yourselves. He predicted the rise of black power 50 years before the rise of black power. He understood the limits of white liberalism and the limits of an interracial alliance. And, uh, and, he, and, and by the way, this, I, I didn't find this speech in the archives. Um, this speech was actually published in a book that was published 20 years before mine. So I'm like to all my scholar friends, like, you read that in Murray Friedman's book. Um, like, didn't, didn't that ca cause you to kind of rethink all of the assumptions that you might have had about, um, about what was going on. All right, how are we doing so far? Are you shocked and undermined in your assumptions? And here's, and here's the fun part, intellectually. This is not why I wrote the book. I was uninterested in this. The book's first title was Turning Inward. And it was called Turning Inward because I was fascinated by the Jewish ethnic revival of the late 1960s into the 1970s, that Jews became more Jewish, basically, in the late 60s. And I was tracing its origins, and that's how I got to black power. But as I was talking, as I was researching Jewish ethnic revival's relationship to black power, I started moving backwards in time in the sources and coming up with this stuff. And then I just kept going back to the 1950s, and then I got back to 1914. And I went, oh my God, I got a different book here. So I researched it in reverse, and then I wrote it going forward. So who has text number six? Please. Yeah. Black person as... Oh, if you can read it first so they can think about it. Perhaps the saddest element in this whole frightening picture is in the fact that Jews are people who are best able to understand the rhetoric of black power even though they are most directly on the firing line of its attack. All right, so who said it and why, or when? A black person in the mid-60s. Right, and why would a black person in the mid-60s have said that? Uh, well, we're, we're, we're at the point where uh, black power is beginning, and so there's now backlash against the Jews, uh, anti-Semitism. Okay. Yeah, right. there is. There is black anti-Semitism. Yeah. And so, so, so this person is saying, um, it's too bad that this is happening because the Jews could be our allies because they really understand us. And it takes a black person to understand black power because Rabbi Arthur Hertzberg never would. <laughs> Columbia University professor, congregational rabbi in the conservative movement, author of The Zionist Idea, one of the most important books in Zionist historiography. 1966. And 1966 is important because tensions are really intense between blacks and Jews in 66. Um, when I read this quote in the archives, I was like, not only is this a great day, this, this is going in the book. This might, sometimes you do a little quote at the beginning of every chapter of a book. If I decide to do that, which I didn't, but if I did, that was going to be the quote I was going to use. Perhaps the saddest element in this whole frightening picture. Let's pause right there. In 1966, it's a frightening picture. 
Blacks and Jews have split. Jews are charging blacks with anti-Semitism. Blacks are charging Jews with racism. There's violence in New York City. There's ocean. There's, there's, it's, it is frightening. So he is saying, I understand the fright. And Jews are best able to understand black power, even though Jews are on the direct firing line of its attack. The historiography had said before this, the firing line of black power split Jews apart. And in 1966, he's sitting in the middle of it, and he's saying the opposite. Yeah. I was going to say, this is directly what has upset me is that I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I, I worked in downtown Washington, D.C. in a black neighborhood selling men's clothes. Mm -hmm. Jewish proprietor. We had black salespeople, white salespeople. We were equal. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we, I, I took one of the black guys, we went to lunch at a deli. He said, you sure I can eat here with you? I said, why not? I was, right. I, was a, I grew right. up in the Maryland suburbs, but yeah. I worked in D.C. Yeah. I said, yeah, uh, we're going to go. What the heck? And we were served, and that was fine. And I felt this symbiotic relationship, uh, you know, the same troubles that Jews and blacks have. And then I went on, and two years later, the riots hit. Yeah. And to see that blacks who should understand that we are the ones to most be able to mm -hmm. understand what they are going through have destroyed our businesses and everything. Yes. Right. Really upset me. I, I, I thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. And that that is a powerful and dominant story and part of the historiography. And because this is how I was raised with these stories, I didn't live them personally, but I heard the stories and I read them. I was surprised to read Hertzberg's view, and I thought maybe something's going on. So who has text seven? Because we're going to get we're going to follow up right on what you're saying. Yeah, please. Okay, so before you got the hint from everyone else, and this is your group here, right? Uh, who, who said it and when? Oh, yeah, what did you think? Yeah, we thought it was a white person, and we thought it was late 60s, early 70s. All right, well done. Rabbi Roland Gittleson, 1969. And now I'm going to explain to you the significance of, of this and how this works. So let's go back. Um, as you were describing your personal experience, and as powerful as it was, that, that to me is the critical story to inform the significance of this quote. Because only in a world where, where this relationship was torn, and personal friendships were torn, and the pain lasts decades, do we have Rabbi Roland Gittleson saying that the positive aspect of black power is its search for ethnic identity. In the midst of this, he saw that we and then he said Jews, I took it out so he wouldn't know he was Jewish, should be able to understand and approve. He said the American Negro today is in this respect retracing precisely the experience of American Jews a generation or two ago. Now he's taken, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to rush through now to get through till by 10 p.m. So, um, um, so what, what, what he is doing now is he is arguing even in the midst of this, I see a Jewish story. And I was stunned to do it. And by the way, I want you to see this picture. I picked this picture because it's the old white man picture. 
It was the oldest white man picture I could find. And I want to tell you about Gittleson. He was the rabbi of Temple Israel at Boston. And he is important in this story. A criticism of the book could be that when you're talking about the 50s Dollinger, you're talking about people, activists in the 50s, but by the 70s, these are activists in the 70s. They're different people. Of course, they're going to think differently because you're not tracing the same people over the 20 years of the book. You're having different people ebb and flow. That's a theoretical challenge. Gittleson was on Harry Truman's Civil Rights Commission in 1948 from the White House. He was the earliest American rabbi to get involved. In the 1950s, he was the one who sent his congregants down to Mississippi to register voters. They got arrested at Parchman um, Prison in Mississippi. The story I read today from the Southern rabbis, he was actually the one who sent, who sent the kids down. He's trying to get communication from the Mississippi rabbis to the kids in jail, to their parents in Boston, to him. This would be the number one candidate to be pissed off about black power. If anyone is going to believe that black power ruined my career and my work and my vision for America and what I thought race relations should be, it's the guy from Truman on who did it. So when I found out that this is the guy who says that there is a positive aspect of ethnic identity, that we should understand this and approve it. And in fact, what blacks are going through with black power is what Jews went through. I was like, wow. Who has number eight? You have number eight? OK. Which ethnic group benefits most from affirmative action in the 1960s? Yeah. White um, women. So excellent. <laughs> Once every 20 times, someone comes up with the right answer first. So I'm going to give them the correct and correct answer, and then we'll go to your answer. I'm going to catch them up with you. It's supposed to be blacks. You're supposed to say <coughs> African Americans because affirmative action was created for African Americans, but it wasn't. It was, in fact, white women. Because women, by the way, Jews were not a designated minority group, according to the federal standards in the 60s. Um, women were, so that's why women were eligible. So to push it one step further, Jews were the number one beneficiary of affirmative action in the 1960s, it turns out, because white women were, because Jewish women were better prepared to go to undergraduate, graduate school, and professional careers than any other random white woman was, which means that uh, any argument of meritocracy, of Jewish opposition to affirmative action based upon, I don't want some black kid going to my kid's spot in Harvard because of the color of their skin, the classic anti-affirmative action argument, is missing the gendered aspect of it. And any Jewish his historiography that opposes affirmative action is gendered, if not misogynistic and sexist, because it is ignoring the fact that blacks were not the, the biggest beneficiary Jews were, and Jews were because of Jewish women, and the only way you can make your argument otherwise is to ignore the existence of Jewish women. And the historiography has ignored Jewish women, at least until the rise of second wave feminism in the 70s. So with all of that, um, that's actually not in the book either, but I just wanted to share it with you. Um, and uh, I was, uh, in the first book, looking in the archives um, about the Freedom Rides in the early 60s, and I got a, it was called a card catalog back in the day, and it said Freedom Ride 1974, which is, or 71, it was a typographical error, like whoever, back when we had typewriters, if you have your hand on the wrong key, so I, I called it up. And the folder came out, and it, clearly whoever was typing didn't move probably her hands. And it was Freedom Ride 1971. And then I, I pulled it out, and it turned out 
to be a freedom ride in 1971 for Soviet Jews from Washington, D.C. to Seattle. It was a bus of young college students and some Soviet refuseniks going to city after city having a rally. And I thought, this is fascinating. The Soviet Jewry movement used the language of the civil rights movement, but applied it to Jewish identity. In fact, a third of the Soviet Jewry movement activists were trained in the civil rights movement. And, all right, so here is the ahistorical approach. The Soviet Jewry movement was able to get U.S. Senate support of the Jackson-Bannock Amendment, if you remember, because it was an anti-communist thing. If Senate's not going to love Jews as much as they're going to hate commies. So the Soviet Jewry leadership was smart enough to portray Soviet Jewry as an anti-communist thing, and then they got it through Congress. If you were an American Jew and you wanted to help Soviet Jews and you were going to use anti-communism, you should use it in 1954, the height of McCarthyism. The Soviet Jewry movement does not nationalize until 1964. And it's not until the late 60s and early 70s that tens of thousands of American Jews are literally in the streets. Some of you may have been fighting for Soviet Jewry. So I argue that the rise of Soviet Jewry is a consequence of the rise of black power. Because in the 1950s, when we should have been out in the streets, we weren't because we were getting into the white suburbs and we wanted to like not be public in our Jewishness to fit in for the first time. And only after black power said it's okay to be ethnic in public, democracy is in the streets, did Jews follow and take a page from the black power handbook. By the way, American Indian movement did, took over Alcatraz Island, the Latinos formed Mecha, um, there are a variety of ethnic racial gender groups that, that took from black power. I'm in American Jewish history, so, so I do the Jewish part. Um, and then the 1967 war hit. The American Jewish leadership was stunned with the amount of support American Jews and young Jews had about Israel. In 1967, um, there was a one-hour luncheon in New York City. They raised $18 million, and those were 1967 dollars. Um, 7,500 Jewish college students called their mothers and said, send me my passport because I got on planes and flew to Israel in order to um, support the cause. The UJA, United Jewish Appeal, doubled fundraising in the year after the Six-Day War from before. Are you ready for this? Public opinion polling showed 97% of American Jews had strong sympathy for Israel. Can you imagine 97%? Um, by the way, in 1948, American Jews were very happy and relieved there was an Israel when it was created. But they did not respond like they did in 67. So as a student of American Jewish history, my question is, why was 67 a stronger reaction than 48? And what the research showed was black power. That if Jewish liberal progressives used to be involved in the movement, now had their relationships shattered, now were purged, now they need to fight for civil rights for Jews, but Jews have civil rights. But in Soviet Union, they don't, so they fought there. And then the blacks are like, blacks are for blacks. Black nationalism, black power. And in less than a week, the state of Israel has a magnificent military victory. And they're like, Jewish power. Jewish power like black power. Black nationalism, Jewish nationalism. And um, I have a bunch of quotes, which I won't read, but you know, Elkins and Hertzberg and Gittleson and Chad Paulier and Halpern, all of them were in their sermons after 67 saying, 
we and black power activists are on the same you know, wavelength, even though we are not interacting like we were before. And I argue that American Zionism would not have reinvigorated were it not for black power. Soviet Jewry movement would not have occurred without a black power. Um, here's my favorite story. Um, University of California, Berkeley started educational abroad program after 67. So this is the first time Cal UC Berkeley undergrads could go to Hebrew University of Jerusalem and study. They were so excited in the ethnic revivalist late 60s, they're going back to the homeland and they show up with dungarees and beads and marijuana and bell bottoms and they meet young Israelis who just got out of the military after the Six Day War who look at them and say, you are just freaks. So the extent to which these young college students thought they were becoming more Jewish by going to Israel against the Israelis who looked at them and saying, you are more uh, California than I could possibly imagine. That split to me is how this definition of what Jewishness is, is more informed by America and more informed by the rise of black power than it was uh, by anything else. And then the last uh, that I do is the Jewish ethnic revival. Jews became more religious in the late 60s and 70s. Kids became kosher. They wouldn't eat in their parents' house anymore because their parents weren't Jewish enough for them. You might have been one of those. Um, easy question. The Jewish Publication Society, what was the most popular book sold in the late 60s through the 70s? The Bible, that's the easy one. The book of the, well done. The number second bestseller is the Jewish Catalog, which was a Jewish version of the Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, if you don't know what the Jewish Catalog is, it's How to Be Jewish with Macrame. It's Jewish arts and crafts. You, you know, It was so popular, they had the Jewish Catalog 2 and the Jewish Catalog 3 and the Jewish Kids Catalog. And uh, so here's how it goes. Why do you buy the Jewish catalog? Well, well, two reasons, right. Number one, you have to want to be more Jewish or more ritualistic. And number two, you don't know what you're doing because you were raised in the 50s when they were trying to assimilate. So I would argue that if you want to understand Jewish religious revivalism, look at book sales numbers for the Jewish catalog. Because the first, the first kids who bought this and learned, and, and, and by the time the Jewish catalog three came out, well, that, those first ones, they got married, they had kids, they put the kids at Jewish synagogue or day school, Jewish summer camp. When those kids grew up, they didn't need no Jewish catalog to tell them how to be Jewish because they learned already. So if you see the rise and the fall of the sales, we can see that. And I would argue that the Jewish religious revival and also even the Jewish countercultural revival came from that. Even on the political right, the uh, Jewish Defense League, Mayor Kahani, um, took black power and turned it into Jewish power, literally with vigilantes walking the streets. He was a racist and he was working through black neighborhoods and there was a lot of tension, but even he loved black power and the Black Panthers and much of his writing said that the Jews need to do for ourselves what Black Panthers are doing for them. Which means, how would we describe this historiographic school now that we've come to the conclusion? If we have an X, and we have a Y. I got to go with the Z. <laughs> and here's how the Z works. Blacks and Jews together, marching in the civil rights movement until black power. Oh no, everyone goes backwards, we just split. But wait, what's happening because of black power is blacks and Jews are marching in the same line 
even though they're not together because they are parallel. So the challenge, so that's the new historiographic school. And I just want to have a self-interested statement, which is um, somebody's going to come along and call me an idiot in 20 years and tell me that everything I just said is wrong and what's the next one. Good news for me is I had lunch with my friend Ilana Kaufman, an African-American Jewish woman, and we were talking about this 50-year anniversary march from Selma that was happening a few years ago. 200 Reform rabbis went, and we were you went, you, you know about it, and, and we were talking about the Facebook picture, the white rabbi, no offense to this rabbi, but to the white rabbi and the Torah and the black and Delabasi person, and Ilana looked at me and said, where am I in that picture? Where are black Jews? In fact, she challenged me, white man. She said, you wrote 200 pages on blacks and Jews and not a single thing on a black Jew. And you argued that it was a relationship, black-Jewish relations. It's no relation, it's all together. How does the existence of me, as a black-Jewish woman, challenge the way you even think about this? How would you have changed every chapter of this book if it was through the lens of a black Jew? It's like, oh, damn, you're so right, you know? And then, well, my point is, that Jews think that they're being more Jewish by doing this stuff, but they're really being more American, they were really being more black power, that that's actually what was happening here? Because I think Jewishness is really Americanness. I think Jews take from the dominant culture around them, and I was describing the black culture, black power culture. And Ilana said to me, what if the Jewish story is actually whiteness and racial privilege? What if you retold the story of blacks and Jews through the lens of racial definition rather than nationalist definition. And I'm like, that's the next book. That's what's going to undermine my book. So to honor Ilana and her teaching, she's the epilogue. And in the epilogue, I offered the challenge to say, for all I've done, there's more to come, and I am not the one to write that book. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.